Hello, this is Rachel Zucker, and this is episode 56 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Berlin and Amsterdam for a week with my husband and youngest son. The last day I was in Berlin, right before leaving for Amsterdam, I recorded a conversation with poet, translator, editor, and publisher, Jennifer Kronovet. I met Jenny in 2003, when she was working at the Poetry Society of America, and I was chosen by the PSA for their inaugural New American Poets series. I loved talking with Jenny about poetry, and we kept in touch, in real life and through the Poet Moms listserv, as Jenny became a mom twice, wrote and published a chapbook and two books, moved to St. Louis, then to China, back to the United States, and then, about a year ago, to Berlin. Jenny holds an MFA in creative writing and an MA in applied linguistics. She is the author of two full-length collections, A Wayward and The Wug Test. She co-translated with Faith Jones and Sam Solomon, The Acrobat, selected poems of experimental Yiddish poet Celia Dropkin. Under the name Jennifer Stern, she co-translated with Ming Di, Empty Chairs, poems by the Chinese writer Lu Xia. For a while now, I've been wanting to expand Commonplace to include poetry in translation and poetry written in English outside of the United States. I've thought about special episodes or a mini-series of episodes. Talking to Jenny, a poet translator in Berlin, seemed like a great opportunity to begin this experiment. I loved getting to speak with Jenny about her own poems, about linguistics, her translation projects, about Circumference Magazine, the online journal of poetry and translation that she founded in 2012 with Stefania Heim, and about her brand new venture with Dan Weissel, Circumference Books, a press for poetry and translation. I want to apologize for the intermittent construction outside the Berlin hotel room. There was no way for us to wait for it to stop, no way to remove the background noise. In other ways, though, the place and time of our meeting were astonishingly auspicious. Jenny and I begin this conversation talking about Lu Xia, a Chinese poet Jenny translated. Lu Xia is the widow of Lu Xia Boa, an activist, writer, and literary critic who was imprisoned for his involvement in the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989, and then off and on until his death in 2017. Lu Xiaoboa received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010 during his fourth term of imprisonment. Despite enormous pressure from many human rights organizations and world leaders, Lu died of liver cancer in 2017, and it's not clear whether he was appropriately treated for this cancer or not. Lu Xia, his wife, the poet that Jenny translated, was put under house arrest in 2010, despite never having been charged with a crime. When I ask Jenny during this conversation where Lu Xia was, Jenny answers unclear and tells me that Lu suffers from debilitating depression and that there are reports that her health is deteriorating. What we did not know was that as we spoke, or within a few hours of our conversation, Lu Xia was being released after almost eight years under house arrest. Lu landed in Berlin the day after Jenny and I recorded this conversation. To learn more about Lu Xia, Lu Xiaoboa, or about the people and texts Jenny and I discuss, visit commonpodcast.com. 
There, you can also subscribe to our once per episode newsletter that always includes some suggestions for social action, including for this episode, organizations that advocate for imprisoned writers. On commonpodcast.com or at patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast, you'll also find a link to become a patron of Commonplace. Commonplace is entirely funded by patrons. We really appreciate your support, and we love offering you small and large tokens of our appreciation. For this episode, patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes Case Study with, thanks to Above Ground Press, A Wayward, thanks to BOA, and The Wug Test, thanks to Echo, all by Jennifer Cronovet. Also, The Acrobat, selected poems by Celia Dropkin, thanks to Tebot Bach, co-translated by Jennifer Cronovet, Faith Jones, and Sam Solomon, and Empty Chairs, thanks to Grey Wolf, poems by Lu Sha, co-translated by Ming Di and Jennifer Cronovet under the pseudonym Jennifer Stern. Patrons will get a PDF of Jenny's essay, On Translation with Pleasure, originally published in Ofgabe number 13, and access to some awesome audio files. Audio files of Jennifer reading unpublished new poems, of Celia Dropkin's poems read in Yiddish by Faith Jones, co-translator of The Acrobat, and audio of Jenny and me reading in Berlin on July 7th at Hopscotch, an amazing new bookstore and event space run by Siddhartha Lokanandi that I highly recommend if you find yourself in Berlin. We'd love to hear from you, patrons and listeners. What are your feelings about Commonplace? What do you like? What would you like more of? What would you like us to try that we haven't yet tried? We'd like to know specifically if you'd like us to do more episodes on translation and international poetry. I know I'd like to. I'd like to do more episodes with poet translators asking some of the same questions I posed to Jenny, as well as new ones inspired by this conversation. Talking with Jennifer Cronovet made me more excited than ever to read poetry and translation, more international poetry, and to talk with a wide range of poet translators working on various types of translation projects and living in multiple languages. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging and timely conversation as much as I do. Here's Jennifer Cronovet. I'm super excited. We're sitting in um, Hotel Otto in Berlin. Um, here, you um, go by Jennifer or Jenny yeah. in your professional Jennifer. Either. Either. Yeah. Okay. Just not Jen. No. Yeah. I don't think of you as a Jen. Yeah, I'm really not. No. Yeah. Okay, so we're in Berlin, and this is the first conversation that I've done with the intention of focusing on translation. But it's a little overwhelming to me to figure out exactly how to do this, in part because you are a poet who writes in your own language. But I want to try to start with translation and then come back to your work, because um, you're both. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so will you talk about your most recent translation project and sort of how it came to be and a little bit about it, just to give some context to listeners? Sure. Awesome. So... With Ming Di, we translated Lucia's poems, and it was published in 2015 as Empty Chairs with Grey Wolf. And I met Ming Di in Beijing as part of this translator-writer 
festival. And we sort of went around Beijing going to universities and we really hit it off. We both knew we wanted to translate something together and we both knew we wanted to translate a woman. And I know she'd been thinking of Lucia and then I was talking to Jeffrey Yang who translated Lucia's husband, Lucia Bo, and he suggested her as well. So then we started working on it after his suggestion. I was living in St. Louis. It seems so, I think translation projects take so long. But then we actually, once we got started, we translated the poems really quickly because we felt like her political situation was so tenuous. And this was before Lu Xiaobo had died, um, but he was in prison. And Wait, what year was this? Just remind me. We started it really in earnest in 2013, 2014. Okay, got so it. it came out pretty soon after we finished. And this is the first project ever in my life that I knew it was going to be published before it was finished. Huh. So I ended up working on a lot of them while I was in China, which was a weird process because I wasn't looking at the originals as much as I would have if I were not in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ming Di did a lot of the heavy lifting and sent me her rough translations, which I worked with. Ming Di was still in St. Louis. She lives in California. Actually. Okay. Yeah. So wait, you have to explain why you were in St. Louis and then all of a sudden you were in China. Oh yeah. Okay. So I was teaching. I was the writer in residence at Washington University for three years. And then my husband joined the State Department. Mm-hmm. And our first post was in Guangzhou in southern China. Okay. And at that point, did you speak the language? Did you speak Mandarin, I assume? Yeah. I mean, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I can get around for sure. I, we lived in Beijing in 2005. I taught at a university there for a year. And I took free Chinese classes and I took Chinese all day. Mm. But then I didn't touch it for a decade. So it was coming back and the whole time I was in China I took classes almost every day but I'm really slow with Chinese so now all of a sudden you're living in China you've got two kids you speak the language um okay or pretty well by then daily stuff I'm fine I mean poetry's so hard to read Mm -hmm. in English I think yeah (laughs) Um, let alone in a third language you know so But yes. Okay. And so explain why you weren't looking at the originals because you were living in China. Yeah, I think for me it was just an excess of caution that I didn't want to be in a situation where I had to stop the project because I shouldn't have been working on it or we had to leave China. It would sound like I was scared for my well-being in any way. It was more like it would be very inconvenient Mm -hmm. for it to cause a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think... Everybody else, like Ming Di definitely sacrificed more by working on the project because she's from mainland China and mm-hmm. that's her home in some ways. I mean, she's American, but mm-hmm. um, I also just didn't want to cut ties to a place that I feel that I've lived twice where my kids have sort of grown up. Mm-hmm. So I was always balancing these things, but in some ways they were so much less dire than Lucia's situation where her husband was in prison. She couldn't visit him. Then he was diagnosed with cancer way too late for Mm. anything. That was the first time she'd been able to touch him in years. And then he died. And then she sort of went missing for Mm. a while. So where is she now? It's unclear. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's unclear whether she can leave. Probably she can't. But people are trying to help her. Mm -hmm. Did you ever meet her? No. Mm -hmm. 
So, and you originally published this book um, under a pseudonym, a translator pseudonym. Was that also, do you feel now, an excess of caution, or do you feel like that was probably a smart move? Um, I think it was probably an excess of caution. I don't, but I don't regret it. I think it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I thought of the name in two seconds. Like I had, because <laughs> some poems were going up on the Penn website, and then I was like, wait a second. Maybe I shouldn't have used my name on these. Wait, so why'd you pick that name? Jennifer Stern. So my mom's main name is Storfer, uh-huh. but that's a very specific name. There aren't many people with that name. So it's like, and I wanted it to sound Jewish uh-huh. <laughs> because just for my identity's sake. And I thought Jennifer Stein would be too obnoxious, like Gertrude Stein. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. And now I'm happy because it's a nice German name. It means star. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nice. Okay, let's go back to Liu Xia for a minute. Tell a little bit more of her story and her husband's story. And um, I guess my question in asking about that is both to honor her and make sure that her story is here in, in this story of talking about translating her work, but also to ask to what extent her biography and her political situation was present for you in the act of um, translating the poems um, into English, or whether it was, it gave it a sense of urgency, but it wasn't really present every day. Yeah, so Lucia and Lucia Bo, her husband, met as artists, like at a, I think at a writing salon, or an artist salon. And he ended up signing as a writer of this pro-democracy statement, and he was um a big advocate for democracy in China and sort of thought because he was more well known that he could take the the pressure so he put his name on things mm. that were co-written by other people and then he ended up going to prison for that and when he won the Nobel Peace Prize that's when Lucia was put under house arrest mm. so she really couldn't she could only leave her apartment when she was with someone. She, her visitors were really limited. Her phone calls were really limited. She was really isolated. Um, and her younger brother was arrested on sort of trumped up charges. And so it's just a very sad situation. And when he went to prison, when Mulu went to prison and um, won the Nobel Peace Prize, she sort of spoke for him a few times, which put her in danger. Mm-hmm. So this was the situation when we were translating her. Mm-hmm. It's since changed because the show died. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a heart condition. She has depression. Mm. And we did feel urgency, partially because we knew she wanted to be translated and read, mm-hmm. and partially to see if it could have some sort of political effect. But I think we were drawn to the poems themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't translate them necessarily because of her situation, mm-hmm. but because we really love the work. But I think it's still hard for me to understand the the lives of poets in China, even though I have a lot of friends who are Chinese poets. Mm-hmm. But there's no non-political writing because you're always sort of treading a line. Huh. How old is she? She's in her 50s. In her 50s. Yeah. And is she well read and well recognized in China? I think she would be more, but her work can't be published in China at all. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's been published in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And what is the contemporary um, poetry scene like in China? Or what was it like when you were there? What was your access to it? Um, I mean, I feel like it's so interesting and so vast mm -hmm. that I'm like not well equipped to talk about it mm -hmm. at all. There are some really good translators who I feel like are and presses that are doing such good work. The Lucas Klein translated mm -hmm. Sichuan, um, which came out from New Directions. And Zephyr Press, who are partially based in Hong Kong, publish an amazing series of Chinese language poets and Hong Kong and Taiwanese poets as well. A friend of mine who was just here uh, is Wang Jiaxin, who's an amazing poet, mm -hmm. who was here with his German translator talking about Paul Salon, who's one of my favorite poets, and he translates Paul Salon into Chinese. Oh, wow. And it was one of these nights where I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like emotionally seasick going between all of these reference points that I feel so connected to. Um, do you want to read one or two poems? Sure. So we hear, yeah. Yeah. This is from 1989, which is also, I think, such an interesting date here in Berlin. So that's a good... Place to start, June 2nd, 1989, for Xiaobo. This isn't good weather, I said to myself, standing under the lush sun. Standing behind you, I patted your head, and your hair pricked my palm, making it strange to me. I didn't have a chance to say a word before you became a character in the news, everyone looking up to you as I was worn down at the edge of the crowd, just smoking and watching the sky. A new myth, maybe, was forming there but the sun's sharp light blinded me from seeing it. I love that. Are you able to read it in the original? No. All right. <laughs> um, I mean, I could try. It would sound so bad and be very embarrassed. <laughs> um, I love her poems. I feel like they have a lot in common with your work and with my work in certain ways. In other ways, they don't. Um, but that line... Uh, read it again it was uh, I never got a chance to say a word to you before you became um a character in the news yeah yeah um that line felt like something so close and and so familiar um in some way that I, I can't quite put my finger on but I wondered did you have contact with her at all during were you not able to ask any there questions there was a point where I could have asked her a question but then I mean, I think the, the relationship between a translator and the person you're translating feels so intimate, but then there's no way that person knows how intimate. And especially, you know, when you're translating someone dead, they definitely don't know how intimate right. it is. But in this case, she was alive and I only translated a dead person before. And, mm -hmm. But then I thought that's so, the idea of just having one question and not being able to just sit and talk or mm. get to know her seemed wrong. So I didn't, I didn't do it. Got it. Yeah. Um, does she read English? Has she seen the I don't know if she's seen it. I know she knows it exists. Uh -huh. Yeah. She references Kafka, Van Gogh. You know, she's really well-versed in Western art and Western mm -hmm. literature. So she's part of our world. You yeah. Know? And did you have arguments with Ming Di about... You know, like, I, for some reason, I'm stuck on this line, like, character in the news. Like, were there moments where uh, the two of you would say, oh, it should be person in the news? Or did you each do separate poems and then collaborate on them at the end? Or did you go through each poem together? We went through each poem together. We definitely 
argued about things, but now I can't remember what those things were. <laughs> like there, we had a really hard time translating the introduction by Liaoyi Wu, who lives here actually, because it was in prose and I was just having, I think he was making jokes and I just was, she was like, you're just not getting the humor. And I think humor is really hard to translate. Uh -huh. I was like, note to self, don't ever try and translate <laughs> humor. I mean, I've tried so many times to make jokes in German and people just don't laugh. It's the saddest <laughs> situation. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's next level, I uh -huh. think. Yeah. I think the most maybe daring change I made is I added punctuation because mm. I think not having punctuation sounds different in Chinese than it does in English. Huh. In English, you sort of have it, the grammar makes sense. You need to end stop a lot and then line breaks become punctuation and it sort of seems a part of a genre that her writing doesn't feel a part of mm. or a lineage so to give ourselves more freedom with lineation and syntax i added punctuation huh yeah it's fascinating that adding punctuation would give you more freedom with those other uh with syntax and lineation because in english you really need words to go in a certain order or you get confused uh -huh. but in chinese you could you, there's more play syntactically yeah. Yeah. But there's no way to communicate that to an English-speaking audience exactly, is there? I think that every time you try it, for me, it just makes it sound really foreign, uh -huh. which was not our goal with this Right. The book does not feel foreign. Um, yeah. The, your translations, which I really appreciated. Yeah. I think she's not trying to make language strange in that way you know mm -hmm. they're really there's something surreal about them which was what i was sort of working with the most i'd say read another one okay word in the morning a word from someone else's dream peeks at me like a conspiracy the minute i open my eyes the word with an elegant gesture takes me the lonely word like an incurable disease causes pain screaming and possibly death but i'm envious it flies up when it takes me. And that's from 1995, so. Did later. she date all of her poems? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is so nice for us to see the progression and mm -hmm. read it as a kind of history. Read another one. They're so short. They're so great. Well, I'll read the last one, which is a conversation. Mm. There are two voices in it. And this is another time where... Chinese doesn't have italics, mm -hmm. so we added italics to show the conversation as you would in English. Cool. How it stands. Is it a tree? It's me, alone. Is it a winter tree? It's always like this, all year round. Where are the leaves? The leaves are farther away. Why draw a tree? I like how it stands. Aren't you tired of being a tree your whole life? Even when exhausted, I want to stand. Is there anyone to keep you company? There are birds. I don't see any. Listen to the sound of fluttering wings. Wouldn't it look nice to draw birds in the tree? I'm so old and blind, I wouldn't see them. You don't know how to draw a bird, do you? You're right. I don't know how. You're an old foolish tree. I am. Mm, I love that. Um, so I have some questions about how it's different to be the translator of a book and have the book be published and than, you know, when your own books have been published in terms of what kinds of, you know, readings do you do? 
you know, what's the publishing side of it like? And particularly, I think, with this book, it's such an interesting and really uh, sad situation where Liu Xia is alive, but you have no access to her and she can't, you know, take the book on a book tour. And so I'm wondering how you feel, you know, now a few years out about like your responsibility in a way to this book and to the author. Yeah. Yeah. I think about this a lot. You know, I think that I'm really invested in advocating for prison writers and writers who face political difficulties because of their writing. And part of her poetry is just to remember that she's like a really interesting human and that she's out there. But then part of me has this horrible fear. Like when Lu Xiaobo died and she was missing for a while, I wrote a little essay about her and we in a lot of journals which was wonderful, republished some of the poems from the book. And it was so nice to get her name out there again and mm -hmm. um, have people reading her again. But then I had this horrible feeling, what if this harms her? Like, what if this gets her into, like, limits her freedom more? Or what if the last thing she needs is attention? And that, like, I feel sick at night thinking about that. Like, what if this project is the worst thing we could have done for her life? Mm. I think... I would want my work to be translated, but maybe I would just want to be able to leave the country that I'm in and mm. go to Germany or mm. the U.S. Or... So I've never sort of thought, we did this good thing for this person because I think it's so much more complicated than that. I mean, I admire people who are really engaged in advocacy, but I think for me there's so much doubt that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Did you consult with anyone, like either with Penn or with someone about like – are we doing the right thing for her? You know, it, I mean. Yeah, I mean, Mingdi is definitely, she understands the nuances of the politics really well. And I think she approached this like, let's just think about this as translating someone whose poetry we love. Mm -hmm. And not make the book overtly political because we don't know what that could do. Yeah, And we did that. I mean, I think that the work is the work. You know, we're not, we didn't change it. I think that the work stands on its own even if you don't know her story. Mm -hmm. And then Penn has been doing a lot of work on her. I mean, she was the case of the month in August, oh, mm -hmm. about a year ago. And I think that even a month ago, they were doing a big campaign for yep. her. And like Paul Oster read some of these poems, which was really, you know, people are still advocating for her. And I do trust Penn. I think it's such a wonderful organization. So that makes me feel like, okay, maybe, you know. But it, I think it's it's a valid anxiety yeah yeah do you have the I mean I, I'm sort of shy to ask this question but I feel like I have to ask it and I feel like you're the person I could start asking it to um are there issues for you around either uh appropriation I mean you know she's named and it's you're clearly the translator so it's not like you're pretending you know to take something that isn't yours or speak through someone that's not yours but I guess it's more a question of what is that noise <laughs> from outside, <laughs> um, of profiting from the political controversy, from, you know, her, her suffering, from her limitations in some way. Like, on the one hand, just translating the work is such a political act and so important and maybe the most wonderful thing you could do. But then just, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think about it a lot. In some ways, it was a relief not to have my name on it because I wasn't, 
in some ways it made it easier to advocate for her and be pushy and sort of say, oh, we should publish more poems because it wasn't like I need my name out. You know, I could be pushier actually in promoting the work. I think in terms of appropriation, I think about that more in terms of this writing project because I do Chinese martial arts and I've been writing about it a lot. And just having lived in China and spent so much time there, like how can I touch this experience, this country that's not mine at all, but where I've spent a decent amount of my life and... I don't think turning away is an answer for, you know, turning away from the work or from the poetry of other countries just because you aren't from there makes sense. But I do think it's important for me to understand as much as I possibly can in service to the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess part of what I'm dancing around in this question, and maybe it'll be helpful if I'm just more explicit and overt as maybe you know but probably people listening don't know um, when my mother died she was in Taiwan and she had been there uh, several times for months at a time um, and she was working on translating Monkey King and you know she had learned the language in her like 60s um, and was studying with all these people about the movements and um, and really felt like this story had not been translated um, in a way that a Western imagination and audience could really appreciate. And she loved the story. Um, And this was very much in keeping with like, you know, her whole career of going to Haiti and recording stories in Creole and, um, and translating them and um, retelling these Haitian folktales. And, and it's always was vexed. It was like she was preserving these stories, but she also was profiting off of them in certain ways not financially because the work that she put in vastly outweighed you know the money that that she got but but her career was really based on this kind of work you know of collecting folktales and fairy tales from all over the world and and either translating them or retelling them you know for a contemporary audience and you know I think that when I was younger I never heard or It never occurred to me, I'm not sure, people saying like, well, that's fucked up that, you know, your mom, a white woman went to Haiti and like took those stories. That wasn't the way this, this uh, was explained or was thought of. Um, But certainly more and more that has been a real um, pressing question, like what gave her the right, you know, to be the one to bring those stories you know, to the United States or to an American audience or an English speaking audience. And I think that's a really interesting question. Like, you know, how do you negotiate those questions of like, what gives you the right or permission to live and speak and work and inhabit another culture, another language, and make it your own, really? Yeah. Yeah. I never made it my own, that's for sure. I mean, I felt like a real outsider in China. I mean, not I'm not complaining. Mm-hmm. I am an outsider in China. So um, I think about these questions a lot. I think I don't have an answer for sure. I think for me, like not caring about Chinese poetry or not caring about Chinese language, I don't think that's the answer mm-hmm. to cultural appropriation. And I don't feel like these poems are mine. Like I feel like... They're definitely Lucia's. Whereas with Celia Dropkin, I, I don't feel like they're mine, but I feel like a wrong feeling towards them that definitely I don't allow myself to have for Lucia. I mean, I think about this 
in some ways more in terms of my kids that mm. some of their strongest memories are going to be from this country that they have no claim to, but that like my daughter went to Chinese preschool and was speaking Chinese and has lost it all now. But mm. that this idea of how do you like, how do you touch culture, a culture that's not your own and um, turning away from it seems wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think these are, these are questions we also dealt with with Circumference, like the magazine that Stefania and I did for 10 years. Like, what does it mean to bring something into English? What are you doing to it? Mm-hmm. Um, and is that necessarily a good thing? And sometimes those questions are answered through, like, how are you translating it in these technical ways? And, like, are you making it into a palatable English poem that could have been written in English? Like, that's one one thing that I tend not to like when I read a translation. Like, could this have been written in English? Would it have made... Does it feel like it was translated because it's so similar? But then then there's the opposite where you're like, do I like this because it seems really foreign and exciting? Yeah. I think because I haven't lived in the U.S. very much in a long time, mm. I don't see like the way that the U.S. speaks about China as much anymore because I was in China. But... I guess w- what I want to be able to do is also like critique China <laughs> without without like how can I do that without um, I guess pointing fingers as an American doesn't make much sense right now. But then my friends who are poets in China are living the, these really difficult lives, trying to balance what can be said and what can't. Let's talk a little bit about Celia Dropkin and I. Um, you know, you have this incredible piece in the world of words um, where you talk about um, wanting to translate Celia Dropkin, um, who's a Yiddish poet, a poet writing in Yiddish, I guess one would say, and your relationship to the story of learning Yiddish and of inhabiting a dead language and why you would do that. So we're going to link to that. So I don't want to talk too, too much about it, but I feel like we have to bring it into the conversation, both because it's an amazing um, story and an amazing book, but also because it is, I think, your relationship to that project uh, and my relationship to that project is so different from Liu Xia. So can you talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, especially, I guess, how that felt different to you um, than this project. So Celia Dropkin was a poet who came to the U.S. when she was 19 from what's now Belarus, white Russia. And she wrote in Yiddish and was part of this sort of all-male literary scene in New York in the teens and the 20s called Introspectivists. And um, she wrote this like really secular, sexual, kind of like out of control poetry and was really critiqued for it. And I studied Yiddish because I wanted to translate poetry from Yiddish. I wanted to translate poetry, period. And I got a grant when I was in grad school to do a summer Yiddish program. And then I was sort of flipping through the library and I found one of her poems. And then I translated one of her poems for a translation seminar. And then that's when I met the two people, one of whom was in high school at the time, who we ended up translating (laughs) this book, who was just here in Berlin last two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we've had, I mean, we're still really close and have all these connections. It's kind Mm -hmm. of amazing. And 
we worked for about 13 years translating that book just because we started it and put it aside and then started it again. And, and you're right in the, you're in the middle in terms of the ages. You wouldn't say who they are. And, yeah, it's yeah. Faith Jones, mm-hmm. who is a librarian who lives, she was in New York, but she lives in Canada now. And Sam Solomon, who is a poet and he just has, he just came out with this amazing book of poetry and an academic. Cool. Yeah, and lives in England. Wow. Yeah. So international on every level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but we were all in New York when we started. Right. Yeah. Just also for comparison, Empty Chairs took how many years from when you started to when you... Really two. Two years. Yeah, it was okay. really fast. Um, but the Dropkin Project was much longer, yeah. right? Yeah. Mainly because, I mean, we were so young when we started it and I didn't know what I was doing. And also... There's something that was like deeply unpalatable to me about the poems when I started that I ended up really loving. So Uh it just took a really long time, like that they were so over the top and gross. Mm -hmm. And it took me, I think I had to read a lot about translation and work with a lot of translators to give myself permission to to translate the way that I did. We did translate that book, which Mm -hmm. was, you know, take it out of form, make it sound radical in English which meant sort of like pulling it really hard into Hmm. the present Hmm. whereas with the Lucia I didn't work them so much like Mm -hmm. her poems are so powerful like the imagery in them is already so powerful that they don't need that kind of working Mm. to sound like contemporary I mean they're also more contemporary so that's part of it when you say pulling the Dropkin poems out of form, was it because they were rhymed? And, yeah, and, some of them were. Yeah, yeah and, some of them were. And so they didn't sound radical. They yeah, they sounded s- a little. I mean, they the way that sometimes poems written in form can sound just that sounds heavy to us now. What trick or what ability do translators have to imagine what? the poems would have sounded like to in in their moment so like that seems so mysterious to me to try to not just translate you know the words and even the syntax um but to say okay so when these poems were first published or when they were written uh this form sounded radical or this 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 sounded radical but now in order to make it have that same quality or that same reception from the audience I have to do something totally different to it how do you how do you imagine what it was like to be a reader at that time we read reviews of her work and Uh it was just like this stuff is messy and out of control and unseemly and it really was like she's not doing what you're supposed to be doing and it was totally you know sexist and conservative and I mean she was married with six kids it was and she had a million affairs I think and it just there was you could just tell people were sort of like whoa uh-huh yeah wow yeah and she it's interesting because when some of the journals she published in people were translating into Yiddish the same poems that Pound was translating from Chinese. Mm. So it was the same moment in some ways, you know, like they were trying to figure out what it meant to be modernists. Mm -hmm. This is also a political act um, to translate Celia Dropkin, but it's a different political act. Um, I know that you say, you know, you wanted to learn Yiddish to translate poetry, but can you talk about... I mean, maybe it wasn't for you, but to what extent was, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm so inarticulate today in part because I spent <laughs> yesterday going to the Memorial for the Murdered Jews of Europe and then I went to the Jewish Museum and, um, you know, the, the Jewish Museum is such an interesting space. In both places, they there's no way to tell the story of millions of people and so they make the decision you know, over and over again to have six people stand in for six million and, or, you know, uh, 15 or so families stand in for, you know, and then they tell, they try to tell those stories, which again is impossible to tell the story of one person or one family, but they try to tell those stories in some detail. And, you know, I was up almost all night because I, I had all of these um, sort of swirling thoughts and half dreams and, and, um, you know, thinking about my grandparents and thinking about Yiddish in particular and languages and, and um, uh, what it means to go from one country to another, what it means to be, um, you know, a refugee, what it, you know, all these things. So, so these, all these thoughts are somewhat inarticulately bearing down on this conversation for me. Yeah, I mean, it's what I think about all that. I think being a Jew in Berlin is, it's always interesting because you're always thinking of, in some ways, I'm like, finally, we're all thinking about the same point in history together, <laughs> you know, from different angles. But um, part of the reason I learned Yiddish is because I wanted a lineage. And I think you write about this so much, you know, like really needing to find where you come, where your voice is coming from, because it's a mystery. It's really, I mean, I don't sound like my parents at all. They're not, my parents don't like poetry, you know, <laughs> they're very supportive, lonely people, but they're just not into it. And I was like, why do I think the way I do? Maybe it's that that there's this other language that's the real language that has shaped the way that I think somehow. Um, that was the language of my grandparents, who I was very close to. But when I learned Yiddish, I was like, oh my gosh, Yiddish is so hard. It's like not, <laughs> it's just a language, you know? And some, in some ways, it's just... It's like any other language. I understand that it's not. Like there are things that I really love that are specific to Yiddish, like the mutt quality of it. Mm -hmm. It's such a mix, like English. I got a master's degree in applied linguistics, and I wrote about Yiddish. And I think there's this idea that Yiddish is inherently funnier. But as a linguist, I just don't believe that some languages are inherently funnier. But I think that like there's this idea that it's funny, so it's not sad. But Yiddish is also really sad and really sexual and really everything, really everything. So when I learned Yiddish, obviously it couldn't live up to this expectation that it would be like this perfect language. I'm really obsessed with people who invent perfect languages and the idea of perfect languages, which are impossible. And um, Yiddish is not my secret hidden language inside myself. Mm. But it was really interesting learning it. So this is a very long story, but I'm going to tell you the whole thing. I love it. I was giving, I had to give a presentation in my German conversation class last month. It was the best teacher I've ever had in any language. Mm. And the class, everyone in the class was awesome. And I really wanted to talk to them. It was the first time I was like, I want to say something in German. I want to really figure out how to say something. So I decided to give a presentation on like why I write poetry mm. and I wanted to talk about two people who inspired my poetry and one is Paul Salon who was um his parents died in the Holocaust and he was a survivor of the Holocaust and he wrote these poems that 
really like broke German apart. And he grew up in this, his mother was in love with German literature and had him speaking German. So he grew up speaking German Mm. because of this love of German literature, which I also share. And then I also talked about Charles K. Bliss, who was also a Holocaust survivor and who's older. And when he was in the concentration camp, he would listen to, they would put propaganda speeches on loudspeakers and he would think, oh my gosh, they're manipulating all these phrases from German. They're taking them and reusing them because they have sentiment. Mm. His wife got him out of the concentration camp and then he ended up finally in Shanghai and he started to be able to read um, Chinese, but he didn't know the sounds. So he was reading Chinese in German. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he'd look at a character. He'd know what he meant, but he'd say the German word. And so he had this idea. And he was also really interested in chemistry, like diagrams, the way that – things that are universal, mm-hmm. he thought, like diagramming electricity or like circuitry. So he thought, I'm going to invent a language that you can't manipulate, a perfect language, and you won't be able to say any of it. It'll just be symbolic, which is a weird idea of what Chinese is, but it's sort of based on his exposure. And then he ended up going totally bonkers, and people started using this language to teach kids with cerebral palsy who couldn't form words orally Mm -hmm. how to communicate, and he was mad. He thought the language had been corrupted in someone, which is obviously so tragic and Uh because finally people were using this language, and for communication, so amazing. People couldn't communicate easily before. So they're both, and then Paul Salon ended up killing himself. So they're, they're, for me, there are these examples of people who had this intense relationship with language. One tried to break it, one tried to perfect it. And it all went back to the Holocaust and all went back to German. Mm-hmm. And I was looking and I was like, oh my gosh, they're both from the same town hmm. in, Rom- in Romania. That is so weird. I never noticed that. And I'm obsessed with both of these people. And then I've been doing all this genealogy. And oh I was like, my grandfather is <gasps> from that town. No. And for some reason, the discovery, I, I had so many feelings about it because I was like, finally, I'm a real person. You know, like I have this lineage i have this legitimate claim Mm -hmm. to my thoughts which is ridiculous because i've never been there my grandfather left when he was seven Mm -hmm. you know he has no fond memories you know and it was a really interesting town chernovitz it was a jewish town a lot of people came from there they spoke yiddish was at one point like an official language of the Mm -hmm. town or tried to be they tried to make it an official language of the town it's in some ways it's this ideal place to be from for me but then I was like this is not real because I can't even go there it's in the U I mean I could it's in Ukraine but I don't really have a connection to it and then this is this week I was googling my mom's maiden name Mm -hmm. and this town and there's this famous storefer from this town who ended up in Vienna and then worked with the Gestapo to get Jews out of Europe Wow. And send them to Israel. But maybe extorted some of them. Maybe didn't. Maybe he saved them. It's just a totally, there's one book about him in German that I ordered. I was like, this is going to take me a really long time. I mean, I think so much about German guilt mm-hmm. and I felt incredibly guilty all of a sudden. And then he ended up get, being killed in Auschwitz. Oh my God. And I was like, how am I related to this person? Why did he do that like Eichmann has a quote about you know it's just so 
in terms of cultural appropriation, I almost feel like I'm appropriating my own culture when I think I'm trying to work how to think about these things as someone who grew up in America, you know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. but then coming to Germany, I don't know if you feel this way. I feel like I see my culture as a as a Jew everywhere, mm -hmm. like the food. Like when I started learning German, I was like, oh, my gosh, it sounds just like Yiddish. And I was like, I know that it's people think of it as the other way around. Right. You know, there's something really Jewish about it. And that's that's something that at the Jewish Museum you don't see as much as like the Germans talk about, you know, killing the Jews. But they were Germans yeah. also, yeah. you know, like they were part a huge part of German culture. And that's gone, too. And that's something that I think is discussed less. And I want to like, how can you touch culture and in China, you know, I didn't want to impose my Western way of thinking on like, this is what China is like. And so I thought more like, this is what I'm like, mm. you know, in relation to, to this or, but I feel totally free to do it in Germany, even though I'm not German at all. I'm like, this is what Germany is like all the time, <laughs> just because I feel like I've earned that. But now maybe I've earned their guilt also. I don't know. I mean, first of all, do you remember the moment at the reading um, two nights ago? Or was that last night? Two I'm, nights ago. Two nights ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I read, um, hey, Allen Ginsberg, where have you gone? And what, will you, what do you think of my drugs? And there's a line towards the end that says, the Zookers are a long line of obsessives. But I have never misread that line. And I read it, the Zookers are a long line of oppressives, which isn't even a word. And I just was like, yeah, that's true, too. And um, it was this really weird moment. And um, so, I mean, I, I'm thinking about all the things you're saying. I'm thinking about, like, what I feel like to be, a, you know, a Jew in Germany. This is my first time in Germany. Like, I even when I was growing up, my family, my father's family was really like, don't ever go to Germany. Um, but meanwhile, you know, my sons, um, particularly my oldest son, who was here a few weeks ago, um, is super interested in Germany as a real model of what the United States should really try to go towards um, in terms of reconciliation, in terms of like really looking at your own history. And so, um, so last night, after I, all that the day was in me, and I'm reading, um, I'm here with my 11 year old who, you know, like when we went into the downstairs of the memorial for the um, murdered Jews of Europe they were like how old is he and I was like 11 they're like well we really don't recommend this for kids under 14 and so I had this moment where I was like I mean I think it's a moment that most Jewish families I know American Jewish families for sure have where they're like okay it's time to teach my kid about the holocaust how do i do that you know we just read number our stars we're reading i'm reading him the diary of Anne frank we're going to amsterdam tonight um and so i had this moment i was like no he's he can go down um but i also while we were waiting in line had this whole conversation with him like if you see something that's upsetting to you you know it's fine to close your eyes it's fine to ask me a question it's fine to say you need to take a break and you know all this stuff and then i came home i couldn't sleep and the book i'm reading is the underground railroad by colson whitehead so i'm like oh my god you know i'm i all these things are inappropriately horrifically swirling together american slavery um these descriptions you know of gas chambers uh you know trying to figure out if i'm appropriating my own culture 
exactly what you're saying, even to my child? Like, am I teaching him something he needs to know about himself? Or am I somehow like presenting some kind of like, you know, all all these things together that I that I think is going to take me a really long time to kind of like pull them apart and see how I feel about all of them. When you were talking about Charles K. Bliss, and I was thinking about the story of the Tower of Babel, and this question about whether speaking many languages, you know, as human beings, the diversity of language was a punishment, or a gift, the cause of war, uh, or the effect of uh, a lack of empathy and a lack of ability to see other people as human beings. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that, like both as a poet and as a translator. I was wondering if you felt like there are inherent qualities in language, in languages, or whether languages are languages and it's what you do with them and who you are in them. I think both. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love language diversity like to me it's tragic that languages are dying because i do even though this nobody believes this anymore in linguistics i do think that the language you speak maybe not controls or totally shapes the way that you think but allows for certain thoughts to happen that wouldn't happen in another language or certain ways of, and you see with idioms you're like oh i never would have thought to see it that way like in german they i think they don't herd cats they like put fleas in a bag or something like that <laughs> you know just different ways i mean language is all we have to process the world and to connect to other people who are not having sex with like really it's it you know it's all we have and there's something totally horrible about that because it's really flawed. But I don't think it is the cause of our flaws. Bliss really thought that language diversity caused wars. Like if people just understood each other. But I think a lot of European liberals, I've heard this expression, this saying over and over again. Like if we can just see how that we're all really the same then we would get we there'd be no more discrimination and i'm just like but we're that's like the like the same like we're all human beings because i'm not the same as you you know and i i don't want to be and that shouldn't be like the baseline of that's the only way we could get along is if we see we're all the same i think what they mean is like recognize each other's humanity but the sameness of it sounds wrong to me so i guess i think that yiddish is funny because in one sentence you can have Hebrew and German hmm. and that's fun a funny combination <laughs> <laughs> well why is that funny I think it's funny too but why I think because they're just like tonally really different uh-huh yeah I don't speak Hebrew mm -hmm. but I can recognize in a Yiddish sentence what's Hebrew, you know mm -hmm. I know the the Hebrew that's in Yiddish it's a registered jump mm -hmm. and I think like you hear it maybe like a lot also with Irish poets that register leap mm. between words in English that uh, come from different languages. Uh -huh. That happens when you like go from like a really Latinate sentence to a really like Anglo-Saxon or, you know? Mm -hmm. Can you say anything in Yiddish? Oh, no. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> I love putting you on the spot. It's the best. Well, maybe I was trying to make this joke that my kung fu class I feel like it's really important to make a lot of jokes when you do martial arts because you're hitting people and, it's like, <laughs> and you're getting hit by them and if you come off as really serious you don't want people to feel bad yeah 
or I don't. And so I was trying to make a joke about sweating and joking. And I was using the Yiddish word schwitz. Uh-huh. And he was like, no, that's not. In German, the schwitz and witz, which witz is joke, uh-huh. don't rhyme. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I'm trying so hard here. That's a high-level joke there, Jenny. Well, I was sort of making fun of him for being really sweaty, which is not nice. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> so wait a second. You, okay, you are now doing kung fu, right? That's the martial art that you that you are very committed to. Yeah. Um, you're a white Jewish woman <laughs> doing kung fu in Germany. Yeah. Okay. T- tell me about your kung fu passion. I just really love it. Uh-huh. Um, like this is I've like a huge a thing for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a huge part of my life. Yeah. I mean, I think. In China, it was the way I made most of my Chinese friends. Mm. And I mean, maybe I just like it because I'm a bad person and I just like hitting people. But it is really fun to do. And it has a really interesting history. And it's this way of move. It's a language that you do with your body. And it's this way of moving that people do all over the world that comes from China. And it's, I really loved the people I trained with and learned from in China. And it was a family school that had been passed down through generations and and then here, I really like the school here. The guys I and the women I train with are really funny and interesting. And I think that as like a tiny woman, maybe one might not assume that I'm a very violent person. But I feel like it's good for me to do martial arts. Like it definitely makes me control my body and my anger and all those things and see violence as both horrible and also animal and as an art and I'm interested interested in if that can be possible for like something so horrible can be beautiful the my teacher was saying basically we're all like too tense and we're too aggressive which makes you really stiff and slow and stupid um and our teacher was sort of saying you know you were lucky because we belong to such a cold culture and I laughed and he was saying this in German. He was like, did you understand me? I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I did. And he was like, as Germans, we should be good at this, at this Chinese martial art. I mean, he spent a lot of time in China and trained in China, but or in Hong Kong. So but I thought that was so interesting and really funny, like this way to be like, OK, we're not we're not from this culture, but we have our own culture that maybe can give us an insight into how to fight this way. Right. Fascinating. Okay, so now you're writing poems about Kung Fu? Sort of. This okay. sort of like sci-fi novel that has poems in it. Oh, wow. That I've been working on forever. It's a little crazy, but it's fun to write about. It's awesome. about someone who like loses their body and has to make a new one for themselves. Wow. Okay. I think I avoided thinking about my body for a very long time Hmm. because I even taught a class on the body in poetry at WashU. And I was like, I'm just going to sit here and pretend I don't have one for two hours while we talk about this poetry, you know? Like there's a way in which you just disembody yourself when Uh you're in the classroom or, you know, I was pregnant and I had kid and then I was pregnant again and I really hated being pregnant like uh-huh. really a lot and I was like I'm not here right now <laughs> like I'm outside of like there's somebody else in here um and martial arts just made me also like, be in my body and see what it could do like does it have a purpose other than dying you know or making babies or or making language yeah right yeah yeah 
And what if its purpose for me is just like getting really good at hitting people? Like that's yeah. a problem, obviously. Are you and, good? Are you that, good? Are you getting good? I think I'm not getting worse. Uh huh. Yeah. I try to get better. I'm a little scared of you right now. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's talk a little bit about your own work. But I guess I want to go through the lens of translation to ask um, how being a translator has affected your own writing practice. I mean, with the WUG test, it's so much of it is about language itself and language makers and, and linguistics. Um, but I wonder if the writing process or the way you even think about poetry has been changed because of your translation. I think that there's like a tactile quality to translating that definitely feeds like the practice of writing Mm. where you're like this word or this word, like how does this word feel in relation to the original or like this, how does, you know, that sort of really sculptural quality of translation. Mm. But I, as a human or as like as a poet, I'm just really interested in language. That's why I write poetry because I think poetry allows for this exploration of what language can do as a poet do you think you're closer to Ceylon and wanting to break the language or closer to bliss and wanting to perfect the language probably closer to Ceylon Uh yeah or just expose its guts Uh or show how it's controlling what happens on the page or how I am or how we're that's the same thing or how it fails Mm -hmm. but how much we need it and Mm -hmm. yeah it's so interesting because I have I have sometimes described writing poetry as a translation of experience where I'm trying to be as accurate as possible with the language so I'm not just reporting um, the experience or recalling it, but I'm like really trying to give the reader an experience that's mimetic in some way of the experience that I'm trying to describe or, or enact um, through the language. But I'm not a translator. I'm French is the language that I've studied the most, and I can understand it pretty well. I I think for me, part of the reason why I'm a poet is connected to how terrible I am in speaking or writing or reading another language. I I don't understand language on some very deep level. Like I I went to yeshiva for eight years. Half my day was in Hebrew. I should be able. <laughs> to speak Hebrew and I can't I can understand it and I hear the you know the rhythm is like in me but there's something that does not work well in my ability to to learn a- another language and I think I feel a strangeness with English that feels very similar to me with like my inability to be proficient in any language so it's interesting because that sculptural quality that you're describing is both very foreign to me and also familiar. Um, I don't know. But I feel like with your poems, they're not necessarily translating what's happening. It's like translating thought. Yes. Which is really hard to do. And I think that's sort of also like that slippage in language. Like how can you have a thought that's also a mood or a thought? How can you have a thought that's not in language or how can you make thought happen in language when it is already? Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested in those questions. And I think part of, for me, 
I mean, I think learning a language is a slog for everybody. Like, mm. they're part of the reason I like learning other languages is because what it shows me about English. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but, like, it's my mother tongue. I feel I have friends now who speak to their kids and not their mother tongue. Uh huh. I know several people, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's so interesting to me because I cannot imagine doing that. I think in China, there was a point where I was like, I can choose, like I could become really good at Chinese or I could keep writing, you know, and, you know, I chose a little bit of each, I guess. I didn't really make a decision. (laughs) I just failed. So I I can relate to that feeling of like imperfection, I think. Yeah. What's something that you know about English that other English speakers might not know because of your... uh, facility with these other languages I guess I'm really well I don't know if it comes from my facility with other languages or studying linguistics Mm. like I'm really interested in how time works in English I'm interested in prepositions which I feel like people are not maybe very interested (laughs) they're a little bit boring I'm interested in all the boring parts and learning German is so funny because you realize things that maybe are obvious to other people or I do like to publish comes from the word is related to the word public hmm. and I was like oh yeah like mm. you're making in German it's really obvious like you're making public when you publish mm. so it just reminds me of things that have always been there mm-hmm. but now I know how to see them mm-hmm. I mean I think that um the WUG test one of the things I loved about that book is it's about so many different things. It's about um, your son, um, you know, being with your son, watching him come into language, about language, about linguistics, about, but the word with, um, so many of the poem titles, um, like I'll read just a few of them are, with the boy outside, with the boy we made ourselves through, with the boy with my father, with the boy who gazes. To me, the book on some um really important level is about the word with and once I understood that and once I was reading the poems as much about the word with I also had a new understanding of with as it relates to parenthood um, maybe particularly motherhood but let's just say parenthood that I don't know that word came into it was like it came into color for me in a way that I hadn't been able to see it before so I don't find that boring at all I find that like you know deeply satisfying like I think maybe some poets might think it was weird if I was like your whole book is about with (laughs) the word with (laughs) but I don't know how and how how does that make you feel when I say that great no it does (laughs) So I'm pretty, I love this book, Metaphors We Live By, by George Lakoff, who's doing a lot of political writing. He's a linguist. Uh Um, And he talks about how, in English, how metaphorical prepositions are. Mm. And with is really, like, it's almost the least metaphorical one because because it's also physical. Mm. But it's funny because prepositions are the hardest thing when you're learning a foreign language because they're so, they never line up. Hmm. Like by in German doesn't mean by in English. And it sounds exactly the same. Or it's just like they just don't line up. And they're really so inherent to the way people think. Mm -hmm. They carry so much weight. It's just a funny story. I read, I gave a reading in Oakland with, um, I 
think I'm, I'm like very bad with people's initials, but I love his poem. CS? CS Giscol. Yes. yes, thank you. Because <laughs> I love his poems so uh-huh. much. And I was so excited to read with him. And then George Lakoff was in the audience. Oh, no way. And I have a huge poem about him in the book. He's like, a hero, yeah. But he wasn't there to see, hear me. He was there. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. And I started crying a little, which I never really do. Like, I never cry unless I'm watching, like, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And <laughs> uh, my sister was there. And she's like, it's just some old Jewish guy. I don't know what you're from. <laughs> it's just like, it's just, I don't know. Like, buck up, sister. And I was like, okay. And then I read all of these poems about linguistics. I didn't read the one about him. And I thought I was sort of going to die. Uh-huh. And then he came up and he was so nice. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I actually, he, the first thing he said is like, I'm friends with Jean Burko Gleason, who wrote the WUG test that my uh-huh. book's named after. And I was like, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bone about you. And then we ended wow. up doing Tai Chi together. It was so. No it was, way. It was like a dream. Wow. Yeah. Wait, all right. Read something from the WUG test. Well, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is sort of what we were talking about. Okay. So, okay. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. The language one speaks determines the way one thinks. That's from the, that's, is the superior hypothesis. Something is coming up from behind. It's her. The brain you would have had if you were you in another tongue. Your own underside of idiom. Your what else. About to slip past and into the city field. A language just died. The way his body moving across the field at night, that's him recognizing his shifting shadow like smelling bread before biting down. There was one word for that. In some languages, time moves down, not forward. Time keeps motion for us. The other you descends while you put one foot in front of the other. Phrases like this proliferate distance to her like oil on the surface of saying. Behind you now, the English what closing in. Above, a sky of words you don't know how to say. There's so many things I love about that poem. One really small thing was the English what. Um, that word, you know, there, there are moments when I feel like I'm reading a poem and it's magic, you know, that, that I hear the tone of the word in a different way, th- that in a way that doesn't seem like it should be possible to just be able to um, decode the characters on the page. And that word what and the way that it is often, you know, inflected or, you know, it can be what, you know, it, it's, but there's something about it. It, again, it's like, uh, you animated the word and, and like a whole drama around a word rather than a narrative. There, there's something about the way you're able to do that. That is just astonishing. Thank you. I think my goal with the book was for each poem to be about language and be language. Yeah. And be doing something, doing what it was saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, and try and have that duality. And with, with the with the with poems, mm-hmm. try and get at that experience of, I mean, when you're with somebody who's learning how to talk, it's really quiet, actually. Like you hear your thoughts, you're really alone. Mm-hmm. But then you're watching this person you feel like you know become a person who you maybe don't. Yeah. Because they can talk. And it's just a very, very weird linguistic experience that I wanted to capture. I remember in when I was studying applied linguistics, one of our professors said that unlike in other fields, at a very like early time, there were a lot of women who made 
really important discoveries in applied linguistics because they were mothers. Mm. And I remember, and this was before I had kids, and I remember thinking, I'm going to study my children and like <laughs> make theories based on their. <laughs> and then I was like, oh my gosh, it's like really hard to think while you have children. And but then <laughs> I actually did fake study them and wrote, yeah, a fake linguistics book about. You know, this is very deep for me. And one of the questions that I had during and after reading the WUG test was so often the speaker is with this boy who doesn't speak or is starting to speak and um, or language is being used between them. And so but there's this this feeling of what it is to be with someone with a different access to language um, than you have, but as language as being kind of this primary way of being with. And that made me think about the withness of being a translator and having this other poet that you are in relation to and their primary text that you are translating. And then that made me think even more so of the way in which I think part of the main reason that I write is to be with the reader. Um, but the reader doesn't have language from my perspective. I mean, the, the reader has language, of course, but in the moment, it's a very unequal relationship to expressive language. And I don't know, I never really thought about that. I, you know, people say like, oh, who are who are you writing to or who are you writing for? But you don't use the word with so much to think about being with the reader. And I think that that is like a really primary driving force for me. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like when I write, I'm trying to figure something out. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't, if it's just for me, what's the point, I guess? Like I have to be able to go there with somebody mm -hmm. or somebody hopefully can come with me to find out if this is true. Especially when you're trying to push language. Sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, what if this doesn't even mean anything? Like mm -hmm. that's the scary moment, I think, when you're like, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. You're like, I'm just writing these words and they only make sense to me. I think that's right. to me like the terrifying end of this way of thinking, you know, like how far, what if you push it too far? Right. In an attempt to find meaning, not even to break it necessarily. But I also feel like I'm, for this book, for the WUG test, I was thinking with these linguists mm -hmm. and I invited myself to the party mm -hmm. and that was really fun for me because there are people I've been thinking with for a long time and now I get to be with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of the, for me, the weirdness about moving around a lot and living always in another, in a, a language that's not my native language mm. is like, I feel like a definitive loss of self in a lot of ways, the further I go into another language. Mm. And I want to know if there's, if that's always going to be the case. It can, I'm so, I'm in such admiration. I mean, so many Europeans are bilingual or multilingual and so many people in China speak English. So like you can hold on to yourself and your culture as you go into another language and your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just interested in that slipping point. Does, is it different for you or how does it affect you that you are on this journey in these different languages in these different cultures, different countries, but you have your husband and your two kids. And so in a way you're like this culture maker for them as well. Um, and you have this primary language 
and bond um, with your husband that goes with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's funny. Mm-hmm. I think also my husband ends up being the only person I can talk to about like sometimes American politics. Uh-huh. <laughs> which, like, I'm like, you know, like I maybe it's made every bedroom conference like Me Too is like infiltrated every part of Mm -hmm. everybody's life in some ways in a good way to talk about but it's funny when the only person you have to talk about (laughs) Uh Uh um but i you know i wonder like are my kids they're still american and what does that mean and Mm. when i first moved to china with the kids i kept imagining this parallel life they would have had in st louis i don't know why because we weren't going to ever stay in st louis but then like I reached the limit of my imagination. At some point, I was like, I can no longer have this parallel imaginary life running huh. alongside. They're, this is just their life now. And if I think about me as the person who's giving them all of American culture, it's just insane because mm. I don't know what that is. And I'm ashamed of half of it and miss half of it. Mm. And maybe that's not the exact ratio. But um, yeah, I think... It's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Stefania, my one of my best friends, was visiting, and she said, she said that my son speaks English like fluently, but like he grew up in another country. Huh. And I was like, I have no, I, I do not hear it at all. Interesting. But she was like, really, he does. Huh. And I was like, oh my god. And I know I have friends who grew up in the State Department, and they speak a different kind of English. Uh huh. I've tried to sort of interrogate my friends who grew up in the State Department, like. How did it mess you up? Like, uh-huh. what was the damage? <laughs> I need to prevent that specific kind of damage. <laughs> and they're like, I, when I went back to America, everyone thought I was American. And I never lived there before. Uh-huh. And I didn't know, like, the names of the candies. Wow. Or, like, the TV shows. or I mean, with the internet, it's totally different. But, yeah. Do Sometimes you- I feel like, okay, they're Jews. Or they're like half Jews, but like maybe that's enough to put my mark and make them mine. Right. Well, I do think that that, at least my feeling about that is that there is for a lot of Jews a kind of placelessness or uh, kind of mm, even if you feel American and you know you're American, there is a, a inherited sense that like nations are not real yeah <laughs> or that you're not you're not ever going to be a part of a nation your your national identity can be you know stripped at any moment and therefore um it, it's not reliable yeah i mean i've lived in new york 40 out of 46 years of my life and even those six years was a lot of time was in New York and even though like I've traveled a lot um you know you you would think that I am a New Yorker but I don't feel like that really yeah I feel more of in New York but I don't feel from New York yeah I feel very um curious and envious of people who who seem really connected to a place yeah I also feel really scared of what you're doing yeah it's weird I mean I know this shouldn't be like a sad thought but my husband said to me the other day and like when you go to China or in Europe like the trucks look different Mm -hmm. and 
I remember the first time I went to Europe, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a different kind of truck, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, other than the trucks you see on the interstate that are like bringing things places. And then in China too, it was like the trucks can be really, or vans also can be really skinny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, they will not have a truck. <laughs> like in their mind, when they think of the word truck, it will just be, it could be a whole range of things. And they're never going to have this thought like, oh, I didn't know a truck could look like that. <laughs> I was yeah. like, for some reason, that made me incredibly sad. Do you know, has anyone told you or have you experienced it? I don't know the last time you were in New York, but um, they changed the siren and it's the oh, European really? siren oh, now. Wow. And so I can't, I can't, I remember like when I would come to Europe, the, one of the first things I would be like, what's that noise? <laughs> and it's, I, I had all this like, I, I didn't hear the ambulances and the police sirens, you know, in New York with the same level of, of like real anxiety that I did here. But now it's the same. They changed it. I don't know yeah, why. So crazy. Yeah. I can't even remember yeah. what it used to sound like. Yeah. I mean, it's when we're talking about cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. like I feel weird when I miss China. Uh-huh, like when I uh-huh. miss like the familiarity of being in my apartment, you yeah. know, where I lived for two years, where the kids were little yeah. and I'm missing Chinese food because mm-hmm. it's not mine, you know, it's not mine to miss. But then I can also feel that, w- yeah, it feels definitively like seasickness mm. or the other night when I went to this event that was in Chinese and German, I was like, oh my gosh, this is killing me because it was just you associate certain things with certain places and then I was in like the wrong place for both. I felt like I was in the wrong place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm also feel grateful that I've had a chance to connect to a place enough to miss things there. Yeah. Well, isn't that kind of how we, we, this is sort of a sad thing, but like, that's what I always try to tell Judah, you know, he's very freaked out about death. And um, I think you know, all my kids were very freaked out about death, but my mom died when Judah was at that moment. And so he, it hasn't really gone away for him the same way that it, that it kind of, my older boys were able to kind of like subvert it. But that's, that's what I keep saying to him. Like, you know, when you really miss someone when they die, um, it means that you had this connection to them, like in a way that pain, it doesn't make him feel better, uh, is the, is what defines the the love and the connection and the meaningfulness, like the, to, the saddest thing in a way is when, you know, someone dies and like nobody cares. Yeah. And, but you don't own another person. You don't like have a right to them. So in a way uh, it makes so much sense that same feeling of like missing China. Yeah. You know, um, and it doesn't mean that I had access to like anything authentic, I think. Right. It just meant I had access to my life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to go back to this idea of sort of like myths, maybe myths of translation, I think that like the idea that anything can be literally translated Mm. is like, especially poetry, is just a myth. Like that a literal translation exists, that there's not this like huge cavern between languages that, you know, that all translations that there's like something lost and something gained Mm. and that... There's this amazing, Anne Carson has a really amazing essay about translation um, as this sort of like third way out of like chaos and death (laughs) and insanity. She talks about Holderlin and sort of translators who go mad Mm. and the sort of like 
madness of being apart from people and this idea that of fidelity, what fidelity means. And I think it connects to what we were talking about, like the impossibility of transcending thought mm. and what's your allegiance. Mm. And I love thinking about these questions, even though they're, they're a little painful. I think they're the most interesting questions. And sort of what do you need to know about a culture to understand its poetry? Like, should you have access to everything without any work, mm. you know, mm. and how easy should the translator make it? Mm. Um, and what's your responsibility as a reader in engaging the work and how much should a translator contextualize it? Mm. Mm -hmm. You used the phrase emotionally seasick earlier. And I was thinking about outside the Jewish museum, there's and now I'm forgetting what it's called, but there's like a, an outdoor space that was designed by Daniel Liebeskind. And, um, I forget what it's called, but it basically the stones are really, really uneven, and it's meant to to give you the um, the physical and emotional experience of kind of being a refugee and being in a, in a different country. And it's really uncomfortable. Like we went out there, and you just really feel like you're going to fall over, and you feel uh, like you don't have your sea legs, even though you're on solid ground. And in, in a way, the point of that space is to not make it easy for you and to and and that is the translation of the experience the accurate translation of the experience and I was thinking so much about like these questions of um, if you're engaged in trying to figure out how to make an, a translation that's as authentic as possible whether it's of ease or of discomfort or a combination of both or how much do you um, explain and how little do you explain you know those are exactly the things I'm always thinking about when I'm writing poems yeah so but somehow I wonder if it's if you get the muscles for that in a really kind of great way from not having it be your primary text so that you have a little bit of ego disengagement so that you're able to like, you know, really work on those tools and those skills. And then when you go back to your own work, you're able to use them in a different way or whether it's just always kind of a process, a complicated, beautiful process. I think, I think it's like good and damaging mm. there. I think it's Elliot Weinberg has in one of his essays on translation talks about like, how would you translate bread into Chinese? Mm. Like, cause in China you don't eat bread really so much. It's more, I mean, now there's work, but it's like steam, but would you say steam bun? Like, what mm. would you say? And then you're like, Oh my gosh, what's bread? What is bread? <laughs> like, what does bread mean? Uh -huh. like, like, what is my bread? What is my bread? You know, <laughs> I was visiting a friend in Paris. This is a long time ago. And I, I like really love bread. Mm -hmm. I dropped a baguette on the ground and I asked her, I was like, can I still eat it? And she's like, it's a symbol. Symbols don't get dirty. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God. I was like, baguettes don't get dirty. They're symbols. <laughs> like, like, it's impossible for them to get dirty. <laughs> really shaped my thinking about eating in foreign countries. Uh, <laughs> this is a really long time ago. Uh-huh. Um, she still lives in France. Where am I going with this? Yeah, it's really disorienting. You don't know what bread is when you translate. Yeah. And then I've been thinking about this a lot, like about artifice in poetry mm. and how like sonnets are really artificial. And they were like poetry that was written in form was drawing attention to itself. It was like, look at what I'm doing here with language. Mm. Look at this 
look how these two words go together. It was really not trying to sound like speech or thought. It was really artificial. And I think it's like interesting to think about that when you're translating, like what in this is drawing attention to itself? How does English draw attention to itself? And I, the poems I've been writing recently are sort of like they are drawing attention to – they're about artifice. They're mm. all about this island in Germany that's like really artificial. Mm. It has fake ruins and a mm. fake castle and peacocks. And, wow. Yeah. Do you have any of those with you? I didn't bring any with okay. me. But I, I have this like idea that if I understand this island, I'll understand like all of German history. But I don't think that's, that's like true. That's like trying to make a perfect language. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's this perfect island. Yeah. It's really beautiful, actually. And you used to be able to see the wall from the island. Wow. And it was never bombed. But there, but there were all these fires there because an alchemist was making, like, weird glass and stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is, uh, this is also like, you know, the uh, bread that never gets dirty. Yeah. Yeah. This the peacocks, definitely. They're not real. I mean, they're totally not real. Animals. I'm pretty convinced. <laughs> Every time I see one, I'm like, that's not a real bird. Let's end by, um, will you talk a little bit about circumference? And then, like, what are your recommendations to people who either want to start trying to tra- to do some of their own translations um, or read more work in translation? Just help help us out, those of us who have not, um, don't know where to go. Well, I'm starting a press yeah. with Dan Weisel, who was the original designer on Circumference Magazine, which I started with Stefania Heim in 2003. And it's going to be press for books of poetry and translation. Um, and the magazine has three new editors and is bringing back the print edition. So that's also really exciting to feel like that's still going on. That's something we started when we felt like there weren't many publishing opportunities for, for translation in yeah. journals. And now it's nice that that's still going and that there are more opportunities. Um, What's the press called? It's also, a conference so, books. Okay, great. And we already have our first two books. And they're going to be this translation by Aaron Moray of a, Gali- a poet who writes in Galician, hmm. Lupe Gomez. And they're these beautiful poems. They're really, they're sort of about a language that's a really small language, non-national language, and also about her mother and then a, a rural way of life that's changing. And they're sort of both very language-focused and really tender. Hmm. I really love the book a lot. Hmm. Um, What's the book called? Cavaflage. Beautiful. And the second book we're going to be doing is a Malaysian poet who writes in Malay and Iban. Wow. Which is a really small language. I think it has 10,000 speakers. And the poet is Kula Grassi. And the translator is Pauline Fan. And she is amazing. I met her here. And she translates German into English, German into Malay, Hmm. Malay into English. And she runs this cultural organization in Malaysia that in Kuala Lumpur that brings traditional artists together with contemporary artists Hmm. and helps them incorporate traditional arts in their work. Cool. Yeah, she's really cool. And she's translating Paul Salon into Malay. Wow. Yeah. So the press is a partnership between me and a designer who's also a designer programmer developer. Mm. So we're really interested in also the questions of how can two languages exist on the page or does everything have to be facing pages? Mm -hmm. And how can you design for translation? Mm. How can you give context visually 
in different ways than just thinking about footnotes or stuff like that. So I really love that I'm working with Dan, who mm. we've been working for together for a long time. And he lives in Singapore. I'm in Berlin, but it's a U.S.-based press, even though neither of us. <laughs> yes. So people will be able to buy it. Are you going to do a subscription model? Yes, nice. we are. And I think everything is going live next week. Circumferencebooks.com. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay, that's super exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited. Okay. And I missed editing, but I didn't miss editing a magazine. Uh-huh. Like I wanted to edit books. I think also when you've been writing books, you just are interested in that unit yeah. so much. Translators, I have to say, in general, are really nice people. Mm. And they're really devoted to somebody else's work. Mm. And so they're really fun to work with. I've, we found that with Circumference Magazine, too, that translators are just re- tend to be really generous. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, there's so many translators whose work I love. Don Choi, who's also an amazing poet. Um, her translation translations of Kim Hai Soon just blew my mind. And we were so, when we published some of those in Circumference Magazine, I just felt like so happy that other people were going to get And now she's translated a bunch of, bunch of books by Kim Hai-sun, a Korean mm. poet. Mm-hmm. It's just, they're just amazing. And I think a lot of us love Alphabet by Inger Christensen, mm-hmm. which is such an amazing feat of translation because it's this, it's written in a, you know, based on the alphabet and it really, and in a in fractal, it's like a crazy book to try and translate because there's all these constraints to mm. it, but it's done so well by Susanna Need. Monica De La Torre is always translating such exciting stuff. I think she she's a new book of translation. I'm blanking on the title from Ugly Duckling, mm-hmm. and a student who was at WashU when I when I was teaching there, Aditi Machado, has a prose book of translation that comes out. But she's also the poetry editor for Asymptote, which is an online journal of translation, which publishes really interesting work. Awesome. That's fantastic. Oh, good. Okay, so should we, why don't we end with you reading one more thing? Okay. Fantastic. Um, how about 10 ways to mourn a dead language? Perfect. And then we can all go and mourn together. <laughs> 10 ways to mourn a dead language. One, intersperse words from the dead language into your speech. When asked the meaning of the dead words, say, I never said that. Two, Think of an idea or expression that can only happen in the dead tongue. Repeat until it becomes a whole. Yell in. Three, write dead words in sugar or salt inside food. Distribute. Four, rename the stars with words for body parts in the dead language. Teach neighborhood children to use these names. Five, nothing stays inside the body forever. Six, Seven, use dead syntax with living words when asking for directions to places you'll never visit. Eight, what is the most popular song right now? Translate it into the dead language. Then, if the song plays in your presence, hold your breath. Nine, borrow some clothes from friends. On each label, write one grapheme to spell across bodies, touch me here in the dead language. Ten, send me your address. I'll send you a letter. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you so much. This has been episode 56 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by myself, Christine LaRusso, and Becca Di Gregorio. 
with help from Nicholas Fuenzalita and James Ciano. Music written and performed by Moses Zucker Gorin. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Many thanks to Jennifer Kronovet, Faith Jones, Above Ground Press, Echo, Boa, Grey Wolf, Tabot Bach, and the presses who support Commonplace. Thank you to all our patrons. Thank you to all of you who tweet, email, and otherwise make your support known. And most of all, thank you, listener. Thank you for listening. Thank you.